Hey everyone, Zach here. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you've seen me post several updates over the last couple of weeks on Enrollify's secret shopper experiment. So what we did is we went and inquired at 80 different business schools and we're tracking how these schools engage with us as part of the prospective student experience. We're gonna compile these findings, uh, put together a report. It's gonna be awesome. You know, Stay tuned for, for that. But anyways, as part of this experiment, I have spent a, a lot of time on what feels like a zillions of college and university websites. And to be honest with you, I've been shocked by the amount of friction that still exists on institutions' websites. It's 2020. We're living through a global pandemic. The reality of the situation is that you just cannot afford to have a website full of friction, right? Your website can and should be your best tool for quality lead generation. And if it's not, chances are it's because you have content that is hard to read, uh, not optimized for mobile, not optimized for a solid user experience. So what do you do? So if your website is falls into this category, you know, there's a couple of options. You could do a major website overhaul, which is expensive. And in a moment where budgets are frozen and or and are tight, that's not viable, a viable option for many of you. But the second option is to think critically about the development of a solid conversational marketing strategy. So by conversational marketing, I mean things like texting and chatbots. And the reality of the situation is that I don't think there's anyone better in the space right now who's thinking about these things, wrestling with these things, and who has quality products around conversational marketing than the folks at Mongoose. You might be familiar with Mongoose's texting platform Cadence, but you might be less familiar with their chatbot offering, uh, which is called Harmony. Both of these products are, are exceptional tools, but beyond the actual products, guys, I've been fortunate enough to get to know the leadership team at Mongoose over the past several weeks. And, you know, Dave, Lacey, Natalie, they're all just exceptional humans who are not just smart, but really care about bettering the space. So how do you learn more about conversational marketing and think about what the rollout of conversational marketing at your institution could look like? The good news is that the Mongoose team is hosting an awesome virtual event. Uh, it's going to be next Thursday, uh, Thursday, May 28th at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This conversation is titled Chatbots and Conversational Marketing, Higher Ed's Ticket uh, to Engagement Right Now. Again, that's Higher Ed's Ticket to Engagement Right Now. You can learn more about this event and sign up to attend it by going to mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. Again, that's mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. Guys, even if you can't attend this event, sign up and they'll see to it that you get a recording of this webinar. I really believe that conversational marketing is the future of student engagement in higher ed. And trust me, you, your team, your institution, you're going to want to be on the forefront of this revolution because it really is coming soon to a theater near you. So head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify to learn more about this event, to register for it. Or if you can't make the event or, or even just have more questions, feel free to reach out to me directly at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org, and I'll connect you with a team member at Mongoose myself. Uh, thank you guys for, for tuning in and listening to this. I highly encourage that you register for this event. Again, one final time, it's mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. Enjoy today's conversation. Hello and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. My name is Zach Cruz, and I am the host of today's episode. 
And today I have the honor of speaking with Will Patch, who leads up enrollment marketing at Niche. Welcome to the show, Will. Hey, thanks, Zach. Will, I'm hoping you could start by giving us a crash course for those for those listeners who don't follow you on on LinkedIn and might not be familiar with what Niche is. Could you give us a little bit of a sense of what Niche is and what your role there actually looks like? Yeah. So as I I said, as I rolled into this role about a year ago, um, a lot of people have been to Niche and not always remembered the name at first and realized, oh yeah, no, I've seen that. Um, but Niche is the largest school search site, uh, so half all college-bound students have a profile with us, uh, and then they use that site to research their schools, build their list, apply. But we also have profiles for all the preschool through 12th grade schools, uh, grad schools, places to live, places to work. Uh, so I know the the way our CEO has talked about it is to think of it as Yelp for the big decisions in life, huh. uh, rather than just what am I going to have tonight. Uh, and then my role. I'm just here to continue learning, continue teaching. Um, I share what I've learned and all the data that we have in ways that can help uh, enrollment managers, enrollment marketing people do their job a little bit better. I try to think about the things that I wish I had had when I was sitting at that seat at the table. Um, I run the Enrollment Insights blog. Uh, We have a monthly newsletter that goes out. Uh, We have an Enrollment Insights podcast and a monthly webinar series as well. And for anyone who might not be familiar with any of those content pieces, I, I highly recommend you go and, and subscribe to them. They're, they're all great. I've learned a lot from, from just Will's uh, social profiles over the years. Um, and I've actually, Will, I've been following uh, your hashtag, or the hashtag that I at least I think you made famous, um, which is hashtag EM chat. And you know, you've helped at least grow that into uh, one of the most helpful and resourceful hashtags way of just sorting content in the enrollment management and marketing space. Can you share it with us a, a little bit of a Cliff's Notes overview of your career to date and really sort of the origin story of hashtag EM chat? Yeah, so that that definitely did not originate with me. I'm just the current steward of this great community. Ah, okay. Um, well. that yeah, that was almost a decade ago with Alex Williams and Jenny L. Struthers. Um, they they got together, created this thing. It's been growing over the years. Um, I did a I took it over last year, uh, redid the website. We've it's been it's been fun to kind of breathe some some life into it. They had both gotten so busy with their roles uh, that. I was able to take it on. I'm, I'm still very much amazed at, at the confidence and that the, they had handing that over. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's very <laughs> but humble it's, of you for a minute. You, you could have just rolled with it and said, "Yep, that that, that was my baby." <laughs> but no, I appreciate I appreciate <laughs> no, that no. clarification. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'm I'm all about uh, all that accuracy. I can't take credit for for the great work others have done. Um, no, so it's a it's a weekly uh, every Thursday night at nine chat and then the hashtag itself people use to share information ask questions uh primarily on twitter uh it's it's just a great way to meet people uh we have a meetup at NACAC, and we had over 100 people come this year it was just a absolute packed house Um, that's been so fun to build the relationships over the years i've been involved with it since 2014 uh which is hard to think that's six years already Uh, but yeah we have different moderators each week and we chat about a different topic uh, in enrollment management. Uh, as far as for my, my Cliff's Notes career, uh, way back in high school, um, started a business doing computers, uh, building new systems, rebuilding systems, setting up servers, databases, 
Um, I continued that through college and I started doing some consulting my last year of college, did that for a year out. I taught chemistry and physics for a couple of years uh, and then became an admissions counselor back at my alma mater, Manchester University. Uh, started the social, me- social media presence there in 2010, uh, led missions operations starting 2015. Uh, and during that, you know, we became test optional, which is all the rage now. Uh, we, we changed to an inquiry model uh, of student search rather than the large prospect buys, uh, which was great because we doubled our number of applications. We were not sending as much. We didn't have such a large funnel to try and manage. Uh, and we instead were focusing on the students who were interested in finding them and nurturing them through. Um, also during that time, took over and led graduate admissions. So wearing too many hats at once, really. <laughs> uh, and then became, they, they created a new role of digital strategist. Uh, which was an institutional role. So rather than working solely in missions, uh, I got to do digital marketing, SEO, data analysis, reporting, dashboarding, uh, institution-wide, which was a lot of fun, learned a lot. Um, basically, it was you could think of it as an internal agency uh, that, that I just ran out of a, a basement office. That's incredible. Were you, all the way back in high school, were you pretty committed to working in the education space and, and primarily in, in higher ed? Or at what point in time did your interest in all things technology and all things digital sort of intersect with education? Yeah, the technology side has been around way longer. Uh, I, I still remember programming games in basic back in first grade just because i you know, it was expensive to buy games back then, and so basic that I'm sure a lot of people won't remember anymore. Uh, was a way that I could make my own my own games. Um, no, I went to college thinking that I wanted to do um, either something in the business realm or pre med, and I realized pretty quick that I enjoyed research much more. Um, and and I was very much committed to I'm not going to work in education because my parents were both teachers. Uh, and I think whenever you say you're not going to do something, that guarantees you will. <laughs> so so I, I wound up, of course, then working in education. Uh, but I really enjoy teaching. I, I loved it. I think it fits with, I just enjoy learning new things and seeing that spark ignite when someone realizes they can do something. Uh, the same thing, I've got two kids now and seeing that every single day. Um, I just enjoy learning and teaching. That's that's a big part of my role now. It's essentially still teaching. It's just a different audience. Um, I really realized then during my second year of teaching that I loved helping with the college search side. Students would come to my room. I'd help them research colleges uh, and then had a great opportunity to head back to my alma mater and work in admissions. Fantastic. Now, I, I appreciate that that insight. I love origin stories and specifically love hearing about how people got into the higher ed space, especially those who, you know, have a plethora of other interests and, and other talents. It's really interesting to see how they make it into the enrollment marketing space. So so thanks for sharing that. Um, what I uh, There's so much we could talk about today. And as I briefly mentioned earlier, I've been following you on social media for some time and have learned just a lot from 
all of the content that you've put out, that Niche has put out. Um, and I want to talk about three things in particular today. I want to talk about the COVID-19 surveys that you all have been conducting over the past several weeks. Um, then I want to talk about Niche's education website benchmarks report, the latest uh, report that you all put out, and then talk a little bit about some of the work that you guys are doing and have reported on uh, with respect to rural student recruitment. Uh, I know that that's a lot, and we'll see we'll see how much progress we're going to be able to make here, but that's at least my goal for, for our conversation today. I don't know when I'm going to have the opportunity to talk with you again, so I thought we'd uh, bang, all these, bang these three out um, uh, all at once. Um, does that sound like a, a fair plan to you? Yeah, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get through them, and if it goes a few hours, then might have to divide it up some. <laughs> there we go, there we go. <laughs> oh, gosh. So uh, last week, you shared an update from Niche's COVID-19 surveys concerning the number of high school seniors that were that that had reported that they were reconsidering their college options and it was incredibly startling at least at least for me uh, can you unpack some of this data for our listeners and just hit on a couple of points that you think are particularly significant yeah that was something that i was not expecting uh, you know when you're when you're designing a survey you have the questions that you really want to get at the root of one of the things you think might be interesting, but you suspect you might know the answer. Um, this was one that, like, yeah, I think some students will be reconsidering, but I don't think it's going to be all that many. As of last week, um, 59% of seniors were saying that they were reconsidering the colleges they were looking at. I mean, here we are mid-March. Mid, Mid-March. Mid-May. <laughs> here we are mid-May. <laughs> and and students are the majority of seniors are saying that they're reconsidering what schools are even looking at. Yeah. That, that was mind boggling to me. Uh, it's very, very prominent in new England, uh, but also on the West coast, Alaska, Hawaii, and international students, you know, international students make sense. Uh, there's with travel restrictions or they, they might be looking at us institutions. And now, you know, when they see the cases spiking so much in the U S that might not seem like a safe option for them. You know, it's, there's just a lot in play for them. So that one I can understand, but new England, West coast, specifically two very wealthy regions. Uh, traditionally, of course, not everybody is, but it's two regions that traditionally have more resources and they're the ones most likely saying that they're reconsidering where they're going. Uh, I mean, when you couple that with 39% of students saying they want to go to college closer to home, yeah, that's really opening up some new possibilities. I mean, these the regional universities, community colleges could see big spikes in enrollment just because students right now are unsure. And, you know, even if it's, well, you know, I don't know where I want to go, so maybe I'll stay close to home this year. But if they fall in love with that school, you've got a student for four years. Uh, that's that's really going to be interesting. See how many late applications we get here and how many late changes uh, so I really hope I've been saying since this came out, and you know, a few weeks ago, that colleges really need to be revisiting those local students who are their inquiries or their applicants who maybe have been idle for a while, because if they're looking at new options and they want to be closer to home, reach out to that kid that's 20 minutes away who wrote you off back in September. Yeah, no, I think that that's in, incredibly wise. And I, I just think that in addition to bettering yield campaigns, folks really need to be 
combing through their CRM, looking at, okay, who's been active on our website recently, who's at least opened, you know, emails that uh, we might not drill in at that level, but who's, you know, communicating with us, even if it's just digitally and somewhat agnostically that we might be able to leverage and turn into an enrolled student because we're living through a moment where every new deposit, every new, you know, button seat is is going to make a difference for schools um, for this fall. I'm curious of that 59%. Yeah, I mean, especially yeah, go ahead. for schools who really relied on the campus facilities generating revenue. Yeah. That's gone. Yeah. You know, athletic events generating revenues, that's likely gone. Uh, so if you can pick up some students, you know, that's even more critical than it had been. It always been critical, especially for small institutions, but now way more so. That's something that I think, I mean, we're seeing at niche seniors who here we are mid-May, new seniors signing up for profiles and adding schools to their backpack and researching colleges in mid-May, traditionally after the, the May 1 deposit deadline, which hasn't existed for most schools for a number of years, but you know we like to talk about it still. Yeah, that's that's really really just it's startling. Um, it's 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 just absolutely shocking. Of that fifty nine percent, just curious, did you guys dive into what the the you know top one two three sort of reasons why students were reevaluating their their college decision? Was it primarily financial, or what what did your guys's inquiry into the why uh, indicate? Mm-hmm. It's a mixed bag, but I think a lot of it does root back to the financial uncertainty, at least. Um, you know, some of it was that parents are losing jobs. They're unsure about being able to pay for college next year. You know, hey, maybe I need to help stick around closer here. Uh, we had other students saying that they no longer want to go to school in a big city just because there's too many people around and it's too dangerous. Uh, they don't want to go to a large campus anymore because with more people comes more risk. Uh, so it's it's a mixture of things in there. Uh, I think, you know, as with anything, if you ask people why they make a decision, do you get the actual reason or do they get what they what yeah. they want to say? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot of it will come down to financial and staying near family. Um, I mean, in times like this, if you're 17, 18 years old, there's still that I need to I need to stay close stay close to my family. I need to, that, that almost primal sense of, you know, huddled together in, in tough times. Yeah, no, I'm, and that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, you guys have been putting out these reports, these updates on, on these surveys um, week over week, really since I believe the middle of March, uh, beyond sort of this, this startling 59% in your, in the most re- uh, recent survey you guys conducted of, of seniors reconsidering their college decision. Are there any other noted, notable trends um, that you've seen over the past eight weeks and has, has anything changed a little bit more recently or just anything you could speak on with respect respect to how uh, your uh, the data that you all have have been collecting has has shifted in in the past couple months yeah you know I think there's some that were expected uh, such as more students reporting that they've made their final decision uh, that's that's expected that there's that may one pressure uh, there's also that increase in college students who are concerned in their ability to pay 
Uh, that's up to 97% now of students say they're concerned about their ability to afford college. Wow. 98% of seniors say they're concerned. Um, no, I should, I should change that. The wording of it was more concerned. And ah. last year when we did our student survey, ability to pay was already the number one concern. And now 97% are more concerned. I don't know how you, how you increase on what's already the most concerning thing. Um, I keep going back to, you know, when we had a free response in the survey asking what what feedback they had about how this is affecting them. And, you know, since it's optional, I expected some people to respond to it, but 80% of people have responded to that, which I think people just need heard right now. Um, but there is, you know, some of these stories, it's, it's interesting tidbits we can pull out and learn from. There's one that was really just kind of shocking and heartbreaking that I keep going back to where a student said in the, in the past week, every adult in their family had lost their job. Wow. And you know, that's, that's not just the financial hit cause that's a financial hit. What's that doing emotionally? What's that doing psychologically uh, to that student, to their parents? I mean, that's, that's different than just saying, yeah, my mom and dad lost their job. That's bad. Every adult in your family, that's your grandparents, if they're still working, aunts, uncles, older siblings, you know, I don't know, that's, that's hard to come back from. So I can see how that would make you more concerned because even if, let's say, you're, you're going into a career that pretty much is always going to get you a job afterwards, you know, that's, there's still that concern of, is this the right investment right now? Um, I think some of the unexpected changes was that the positivity about online learning uh, just is not improving. Mm -hmm. We're still seeing very, very low numbers of students saying that it's effective or that they would consider it in the future. Um, there's another survey we have coming out later this week or early next uh, looking at, at what fall scenarios students want. And, you know, that, again, we're seeing on that one too, students do not want online learning. Um, they are having a bad experience uh, and, very, very overwhelming numbers are saying that they don't want it. Uh, and the majority of students, uh, it, well, it's the largest number of students uh, who are saying that if their college does online learning only, they would be, they would want to transfer. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's issues there. I really thought over time that students would kind of adjust and be more positive about it. And that just didn't happen. Um, also really surprising that the number of students reconsidering their schools, we talked about that, that's increased. So even at the same time where students are saying, yep, I know where I'm going next fall, at the same time, more students are also saying that they're reconsidering the colleges on their list. So deposit doesn't necessarily mean, mean that kid's locked in. That went from 34%, so about a third, up to 59%, almost two-thirds. You know, at the same time that students are saying, yep, I know where I'm going, I paid my deposit. They're also still looking at, at other options. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, again, this is all unbelievably unsettling, and and you know, at the same time, not not surprising in that it seems like every week, uh, just life outside of uh, the education space continues to become more uncertain, more scary, more dire. Um, and, you know, just the, uh, I think about, I have, a, I have a brother who's a college senior, uh, excuse me, I, I have a brother who's a college senior, but also another brother who's a high school senior. Um, and uh, the high school senior, 
he was thinking about uh, going to a, a local state school and has now, you know, decided he, he actually works at Starbucks. And he says, well, you know, if I'm not going to be able to go to or if this if this state school is going to require me to do online learning, I might as well do Arizona State University online, which I get for free with Starbucks. And so he's actually yeah. changing his college decision uh, based off of the fact that he's not going to get the experience that he was hoping to get. Um, so why, you know, why pay for anything if I can get it free through my employer? So, I, you know, I, that's just one, that's just one story. And I bet there's, there's several others like there. I mean, the reality of the situation too, is that if online learning isn't going well in high school, college courses in and of themselves, you know, for, for the most part are pretty different than how you're taught, at least at most high schools, right? So there's the, that difference in learning and that, that, um, you know, immense freedom a lot of the time, uh, trying to be done remotely, having not met any of these, any of these people and, you know, adjusted to this new way of life has to be nothing short of destabilizing. And so I completely understand. And it's just, it's, it's shocking. And yet, you know, what's hard on the university end, I'm sure is just, all right, how do you make this incredibly tough decision about whether or not to resume classes in person in the fall? So Anyways, that was a lot, but, uh, but no, yeah, but, but no, there's, there's no good answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do we start in the fall and you have less risk of attrition or do you go online, which is safer health wise, but you have a higher risk of attrition. I mean, that's, that's why we did the survey. We want to know, we want to be able to provide some, some actual data and feedback to help with these decisions because boy, are these not, you know, no matter what you do, someone's going to be mad. Yeah. And I can't imagine if someone makes that decision to either partially or fully open up the campus again in the fall and then they have an outbreak and and students are getting sick, faculty are getting sick, staff are getting sick, maybe people die. You know, aside let's let's put the lawsuits aside because that would be bad fiscally. What emotional toll does that take on the leadership who had to make that decision? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I, at the same time, if you if you go all online and a third of your students transfer, you know, and the school struggles or even closes, that's that's also a major toll. I want to pivot to something hopefully a little bit more uh, positive, um, <laughs> which is, and, and you know, we'll see, we'll see if this ends up being more positive. But have you seen uh, any college admissions and marketing teams that have adapted? Uh, at least from from your perspective, well, in light of of everything that's that's happening right now, are there are there examples of schools and or teams that you can point to specifically um, that other folks who might be listening to the show and feel a little bit destabilized might be able to to look to as as some sort of like pinnacle of what it looks like to be at least remotely successful and put together um, as the world is you know has turned upside down. Yeah, so I'll. I'll uh play a little bit of the Homer card here. The one that I see all the time would be my alma mater. Uh, I mean, Manchester University doing a lot right now with just being very positive, sharing stories. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you need. You need you need that break. Um, Notre Dame's been doing some great years of generated content as well here. Really, that focus on the stories is more important now than ever because if you can't be on your campus, you lose a lot of that sense of place. But if you at least have the stories and you see the familiar faces, or if you're going to be starting in the fall and you can go and, and see 
the experiences and see the smiling faces and hear about what's going on, that's some normality it's still. You know, you're not you're not necessarily getting the same experiences going to campus, but you at least have that sense of place, that sense of belonging. Um, University of the Ozarks is doing some really cool things with scheduled weekly Instagram and Facebook tours of campus. Um, so it's, you know, you can get a campus tour still in an authentic way, just streamed, um, you know, rather than, rather than going to a virtual tour, which seems to be very static, it's better than nothing. Um, but it's, it's very static. You can go and actually get the feedback and see the tour on a platform you're already on. Uh, and then I really like Beloit. They have a very transparent plan for the fall. They have a landing page with their plans. I love that. It's it's a clean page. It's very transparent. You know, nobody could really be 100% certain on what the fall is going to look like, but at least talking about it and sharing your plans is immense right now. That, that's something that parents need, students need. Uh, we need that type of at least feeling of certainty. Yeah, no, and I think that that's, you know, the, the rub really is how do you say something in a way that is sincere, um, but is also honest. And you know, how do you say something that is hopeful and maybe a little bit more stabilizing? Um, but again, at the same time, leaves room for for things to go differently and for you to for you to change your mind. And that's that's really hard. But at the same time, like everything that I'm seeing, at least, is that the schools that are scared of not saying, you know, or there's the schools that are nervous about not being able to say the right thing at the right time. Those are the schools that are getting more criticism than the schools that are going out there and saying, okay, hey, here's our plan. Here's our, you know, here's how we're going to try and attack this thing. Um, we have no idea what is actually going to happen, but we're going to proceed, you know, as, you know, full speed ahead with trying to do this. Like those seem to be the schools that, at least from a social media standpoint, people are getting positive uh reactions to so it seems like it's almost better and or i you know i dare to say uh safer to be a little bit more public about what it is that you intend to do yeah i mean if nothing else share that logic tree what does it look like you know what would it take to reopen in the fall fully what would it take to do a partial like a hybrid flexible model what would it take to be fully online share those those breakpoints and edit the page as you go, you know, as, as the plan changes. I don't think, I mean, yes, students will vent online. Students will always vent online. That's nothing new. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, don't be afraid of people just wanting to, to vent and be heard. Instead, you should be more afraid about looking like you have no plan. Uh, you should be sharing out what's going on, what you're thinking about, what's, what's, what, what are these series of plans? You know, you need a, a A through G or H or, you know, hopefully not an A through Z plan, but you need multiple plans. And I think sharing out, here's what we're considering and here's what would cause these scenarios to happen is so much better than just being silent. Absolutely agree. Hey guys, I hope you are enjoying this conversation with Will Patch. Just wanted to 
put another quick plug in your ear to make a quick note, but we're going to jump back into the conversation just in a second here, but make a quick note to head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash Enrollify to sign up for the event I talked about at the beginning of this episode. It's going to be a really, really exciting webinar on chatbots and conversational marketing, higher ed's ticket to engagement right now. It's going to be chock full of really good information for you and your team. So highly recommend you register for the event. Again, if you can't attend the event, no worries, just sign up and they'll get you a recording of the event. Head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash Enrollify. All right, guys, enjoy this the rest of this exciting conversation with Will Patch. You know, in the spirit of talking about landing pages and, and updating content uh, uh, frequently and digitally, I want to transition to talking about niches or excuse me, niches uh, education website benchmark report. Uh, you guys put this out every year, and uh, I downloaded the 2019 uh, website benchmarks report recently and combed through it, and you know, it was awesome. You guys uh, uh, reported that you collected data from th- over 300 schools. Uh, ranging from pre-Ks all the way through colleges and universities. And I was particularly intrigued by your all's finding around uh, page load time for small private versus larger private institutions. And I, I know that that seems like a, a small thing, but uh, you know, one of the things we see time and time again is just there are a lot, especially at a higher ed level, a lot of, of websites that are slow and outdated and you know, if prospects can't easily navigate content on your site, you have, it doesn't matter what, you know, what content you have, you actually have on your site if they're never able to load that content. Um, So can you just elaborate on these findings and then just chat on, uh, speak to anything else from this report that you found particularly interesting? Yeah, you know, this was something that I always wished I had when I was doing SEO work with the website. Um, Because, you know, you have education as a vertical. Well, that includes a lot of things that don't really fit my type of school. Uh, so instead, we looked at breaking down into a wider range of types. So if you're a small private college, you can look at how other small private colleges performed. Uh, if you are a elementary school, you can look at how other elementary schools performed. That, to me, is much more valuable than here's education as a vertical because that that just includes things that don't fit. Um, so yeah, the the private side, that one was surprising to me. Um, mid-size and large private universities were both loading about four seconds. You know, that's that's good. You know, ideally you want three seconds, but four, fantastic. We'll take that as a median. There, The small colleges, though, <laughs> that's where we got up over seven seconds for, for the average load time. That was just, I don't understand why. <laughs> that's something that shouldn't be happening. I mean, I understand why on the technical level that we just saw a lot of, of bloat. There's a lot of things bloating that should have been, things that were not mobile optimized. Um, I mean, one of the things, so I grouped together the high performance, high performers and did audits on those. I grouped together the low performers, did audits on those. With the low performers, I mean, there were several things that we just kept seeing over and over again. Um, I mean, part of that was that there's a lot of unused CSS. There was bloated JavaScript. Um, you know, we had, we kept seeing over and over again, these home pages that were just, they look like dumping grounds. <laughs> they uh, were just yeah. treated as like a link directory where if you, if you came to that home page from a search or from typing in the URL, good luck finding anything. Uh, it was just so much stuff. 
images that were just not shrunken. I mean, they were, they were loading full-size 12-megapixel images onto the site instead of web-optimized. It was just insane to me, the, the things that were going on. In fact, the, the very worst one they wrote about in the paper, uh, there was one that had so many images, so many large files, uh, that it took, just for the page to load it all, it took 12 seconds. Uh, it was 30 seconds to interactive. Oh, my gosh. Now, who in the world is going to sit there and, and stare at that page for 30 seconds before they can do anything? It's like dial-up I mean, way I, back when. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I I had dial-up, and I remember that. It was not a good experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, um, what's, what's, I mean, what is just most obvious but is, is important to state nevertheless is that, you know, these smaller, especially smaller liberal arts schools, like, they can't afford to have a slow website. Like, they, they you know, many, many of these, of these colleges are, uh, are fighting for every inquiry and every app and every enrolled student. And so this is something that actually is within your control. Um, it is something that you can and, and should fix, um, especially if you are a school who struggles with enrollment year over year. Yeah, and that's something that, so I, I don't know if everyone's seen this before, HubSpot did a study of linking load times to conversion rates. You know, for the longer the load time, the the um, what was it? It's, it's every every increment over three seconds, I believe. Um, they were said, I think it was like seven, half as likely to engage and convert. I, I'd have to look it up and remember here. I'll uh, I'll let people people do that. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you if you go from a four second load to a seven second load, and people might be a quarter as likely to en- engage and convert. I mean, fill out an inquiry form fill an application, fill out a visit form, you know, that's, that's bad. That's, that's something you can't afford. And we saw the same thing on the public side too. Mid and large public universities were loading in three to three and a half seconds. Small publics were loading over five seconds. It's, it's weird to me that on both ends, the load times were very much linked to enrollment of the school, which I don't think, I mean, that's not a, that's not a uh, causation and, and correlation. I think it came down to how much staffing is there. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if you're, you don't need as many webmasters where you can't uh, budget as many webmasters and, and web designers. Uh, if you have a thousand students, than if you have 20,000 students. The other thing too is especially for online programs and especially for online graduate programs, I think that there's something that like you can't you you just can't make the case that uh, 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 uh lag in load time um and you know if, if, it, if it takes me seven seconds to load your online mba inquiry form like what does that mm-hmm. say about your brand like i'm like it, it what does that say about online education right and i you know for mm-hmm. for no other reason but from a branding perspective like this is a huge problem and you know i yeah. I, I what i always say to people is like you know, go and walk through your inquiry form. Go and try to apply as a prospective student. Like, what is that experience like? And if you have to wait three, four, seven seconds for 
to hit, you know, the next page on that inquiry form and the next page on that application, like, I'm sorry, but that that is a huge, huge, huge barrier. We, we wonder why apps aren't up or enrollment, enrollment isn't up. And again, it's not as simple as that, but the reality of the situation is you've got to make it Fisher Price for people. Like, you've got to make it as easy as possible for the user and reduce reduce that friction. We especially if you're a smaller institution who again is struggling with enrollment, you can't afford that friction. You just you just can't. Yeah, and that was something I mean going back to to the ye olden days when I was at Manchester that when we looked at our application page and uh, did some mobile optimization there because we saw a lot of students filling it out on mobile. And we made some tweaks. We removed, basically just stripped it down so it was the fastest loading, most responsive page. Um, and we saw like a 25, 30% completion rate um, increase. Yeah. Just wow. because, you know, you make a better experience. That's why user experience is the most important thing you can do. And I don't, you know, there's a lot of schools that have no UX people. Yeah. No people who are dedicated to, are these pages working? Is our mobile app working? Because let's be realistic. So many schools have an app that is just ignored. Are these things working for people? You know, if we want people to come to the college for visits, okay, let's do an audit. Can someone who comes in from any kind of web query easily find our visit pages? And the answer is usually no. Um, when I did some secret shopping last year, only a couple pages, uh, only a couple schools actually had their inquiry form found on every page of the site. Wow. Every page on your site is a landing page. You know, it, it's not coming from paid campaigns, but from search, from people who are finding a link somewhere else and coming to your site. Every single page on your site is a landing page and should be treated as such. Um, that's that's my soapbox moment. I'll, I'll no, I love that. Here. I love that. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> but but this is a really important point, and I think especially in higher ed, like in higher ed. If you're if you're a medium sized you know institution, let's just say like you have hundreds, if not thousands, in some in some contexts, uh, website pages, and you can't control right like all of those pages. You you can't control everything that those pages are are, are ranking for, and so you don't know what the first touch point. Uh, with your brand that a user is going to have it's I, I think in hired people think that everyone always starts on the homepage and it's like no that's you know you sure your direct yeah. traffic the people that are at your school yes are people that have already are at least remotely familiar with your brand your brand maybe but a lot of people are googling things and they're stumbling upon your website pages and they might be on this page that hasn't been updated in seven years and that's a problem right and so i think like institutions have this this challenge that like you know your your standard uh, smb doesn't have which is that they might have 30 to 50 to maybe you know 75 pages on their website you've got institutions that quite literally in in some contexts have a couple thousand um, and, and, Oh, that'd be small. 20,000, 30,000. There you go. Yes. 20,000, 30,000, you know? Yeah. And, and like, that's that it's a lot to control. Yes. And, and it's hard, but making sure that you can edit some global property to include an inquiry form on most, if not all of those pages, uh, should be basic. Like it, it just has to be, especially in 2020 when you're living through a global pandemic and every inquiry and every app is could, you know, could be make or break for that institution. Yeah, and can it can it easily be found and clicked on on mobile? I mean, if you have it on every page, but you hide it in that little uh, hamburger menu, or you have it where it just doesn't display well on mobile, 
you know, you're cutting off your audience who is on mobile, which are your enrolling students. Actually, I had a, I had a great conversation a few weeks ago, um, over, well, it was probably a couple months ago now over, over on enrollment insights podcast with Paul Terry from UC Davis. And I didn't think about this, but for the UC system, uh, University of California system, if you're an undergraduate, you're applying through the UC app, you're applying to those. So the people coming to their site were not undergrads looking for application information. It was graduate students. Uh, so you have to know your audience too. Yeah. So when you optimize those pages for graduate students and graduate inquiries and graduate applications, you're speaking to that audience because an undergrad's not going to come and look for your application on your site. They already know how to apply. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like some of this stuff seems so basic and yet we miss it a lot. Like, uh, especially in enrollment marketing, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And um, that leads me to to this question, right, on a little bit more of a positive, another uh, hopefully positive note, maybe a, a teaching moment here. Um, what, for the people that are listening to us and they're saying, okay, Will, okay, Zach, you know, you don't understand. I have no team. I have no budget. Like, I, I get it. I'm, I'm in agreement with you. You're not wrong, but, like, I feel trapped. What are What are a couple of things that enrollment marketers can do right now to improve their website performance. Like if you are, if you are talking with somebody who's at an institution, they have enough power to make some change, but, uh, you know, they're not, they're not the president, right? Um, how do you encourage them or advise them to start thinking critically about how to improve their website? Yeah. You know, I, I came from exactly that. We had one webmaster managing a site of over 20,000 pages and then we had me and part of my role was SEO. So it's essentially like one and a quarter, one and a half people. So the very first thing you do, don't think about what action or, or what best practice should I try and bolt on. The very first thing you have to do is to build out some dashboards uh, so that you can understand and triage what's going on. Uh, you can look at, you know, where every morning, if you get a report, here are your 404s, you know, that's, that's the very first thing you could do. You should do because that's going to help you triage and, and fix the problems, so they don't linger for another month or two. If you have a bad link that everybody's going to, you know that's a big issue that you should be finding right away. Have a dashboard that shows you sorted your slowest loading pages, where are your pages that are causing the most problems. So that's the absolute first thing you have to do: build a dashboard, make it something that you go to start of the day. And open up and say, okay, here's the, in addition to my 7,000 other things on my to-do list, here are the two or three fires I have to put out today. Um, and, and that has to be number one. Overall, um, you know, build out a plan uh, for touching your pages, you know, every so often to make sure that you're keeping things updated so you don't have that page that you realize, oh, yeah, I haven't updated that since 2014. Um, make sure to remove any unused CSS, bloated JavaScript, those were common issues we saw popping up. Uh, but I think the biggest, again, strategy-wise, is to have fewer pages. Don't mm -hmm. treat your website like a dumping ground. You can have 5,000 pages that are hard to maintain and are mediocre, or you can have 500 pages, which is still, I think, way too many for one person to try and manage well, but you can have 500 pages that are rich in content that have embedded video, embedded forms. You can update student stories. You can update data. You know, do as many things automated as you can, but 
there, you shouldn't have these pages where the entire page basically has a sidebar of menus and a sentence or two. Every faculty member will say they want this, 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 or this on their site. Have that conversation of, are these for an external audience or an internal audience? If it's internal, <laughs> but on your intranet. You know, you don't need a public-facing website for something that you just want to tell students to go to because I'm willing to bet you already have an intranet that you can send them to. Uh, whether that's a, a learning management system or something, there's no reason to put something that's only for an internal audience on your public website. Do you have Again, any soapbox moment? <laughs> no, no, great. We, we've had a couple of those, uh, both you and I. So I, I think that's I think that that's great. Um, uh, maybe there'll be one or one or two more. Um, but <laughs> for folks who are wondering uh, about tools or resources that they can tap into to kind of help identify maybe some of these holes, uh, are there any sort of go-to resources, whether it's, you know, thought leadership or whether it's an actual tool that you that you would recommend mm-hmm. that folks check out? Yeah, so a, a couple of great ones. Google Data Studio, if you're using Google Analytics on your site, you can very easily build out dashboards and everything with Google Data, Data Studio. Um, it, it'll connect. You can pull in your data. You can set it to uh, email uh, reports to yourself. If you want to basically have an executive summary page that goes out to your VP or your president once a month, once a quarter, once a year, so they can see all the great work you're doing, you can automate that so you don't have to worry about it. Maybe before before a uh, a board meeting, you want to be able to give a quick update of all the great things you're doing and why you should have another half a million in budget, you can just automate that. Um, so that's a great resource. You know, that's something that I've worked quite a bit on is building out some guides on how to do these. Uh, I did a whole series on user experience insights. Um, so that you'll find down the enrollment insights blog. We're in the process now of writing a, um, basically a digital marketing 101 for people who just want to either transition into that type of role and want to learn more or people who run a small shop and are being asked to do a lot and just need help understanding what's out there and how to use it. So there's resources like that. You know, if you're not, again, putting on, putting on my niche hat, we actually do free web analytics audits uh, for anyone who wants them. Uh, that's something that we want to be able to show you what's going on. Um, that's, it's a great resource. That's something you can request as well. Uh, we're glad to help out there. You don't have to be a client for that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good resources. Um, I think if you're, if you're looking at how do we implement a lot of different things, um, I really like, oh, and I'm going I'm blanking on the name here. There's a Google tag manager, YouTube channel. That's really helpful. I'm blanking on the name right now. Measure school. Measure uh, so you school. can use measure school. Yep. Measure school is a great resource for Google tag manager. Uh, they do a lot of great courses. If you're Google tag manager is nice because you can implement tag manager on your site and then use a lot of other tags in there. You can do your Google analytics, your remarketing tags, uh, your Google ad tags. Uh, if you're doing Facebook uh, ads, you can put your Facebook pixel, uh, actually implement some, uh, some other other things through there as well that it's just very easy to do. That way you don't have to go in and edit a page every time you want to add a pixel or tweak a pixel. Uh, you can implement all through Tag Manager. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that uh, for, for folks who are just 
not sure where to start and feel really, really overwhelmed. I think it is worth just noting that, you know, your, your website is a beast and, you know, it's, it's a growing, you know, living organism of sorts and it requires a lot of feeding and a lot of maintenance and a lot of tweaking. And when, you know, Google changes their search algorithms and your, you know, page that was ranking number one or number 10 is, now on page three, right? That's frustrating and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so we're just living in a world where you've got to pay attention to this stuff. And it's it's increasingly important to ensure that you have quality content on your site. Um, and, you know, there are there are several free tools out there that can, you know, help with, help give you this insight. And yeah, go ahead. And, and I, w- I would encourage people to maybe just start with with you, Will, and, and, and the Niche team in doing a, a free website analysis and just um, having that at least to empower you with, the context and information you need about like how do we design a roadmap to to bettering um our our site and how do we you know ultimately design a roadmap to better the user experience because that's ultimately what it's about um i uh, i this has been a long conversation already which is fantastic but i do want to dive into that last topic will if it's all right with you um, with respect to some of the work that you guys have done and reported on with respect to rural student uh, recruitment, it's not something that uh, mm-hmm. I think gets talked enough about in the in the enrollment marketing community. And you guys published a, a great blog article at the end of April. And I'm just, uh, and this blog article sort of uh, summarized uh, some findings from recent surveys you all have doing, you all, you all, you all did between rural populations uh, in the college search process. Can you speak a little bit to what this survey was and just share some, some high level fa- findings that you found particularly interesting? Yeah, so this is one of the segmented analysis. We do a student survey every year. Uh, we're actually just launching one for 2020. Um, we do segmented analysis then of, of that and kind of trickle it out over time. Um, so this one was looking at specifically rural students, and that's something that I was. I grew up in a very rural area. Um, there was just no college fairs in the area. We didn't really have a college counselor. Um, my parents were both teachers, though, so so I had that support. But you know, it's there's there's challenges with rural students that they face. Um, but there's also a lot of misconceptions. Um, people will tend to think that rural students are all low income, which is absolutely not true. Uh, there are students who say, oh, well, rural students just don't understand college search. That's not true. They have access to the internet like everyone else. Uh, I mean, so we wanted to talk about how do you recruit and serve them? Um, Andrew Moe is doing some great things with the NACAC special interest group for rural and, uh, and small town students, that's a, a great starting point to check out some more as well. Um, but we found that rural students placed less importance on almost every college search resource we asked about, uh, with the exception of college admission staff and friends or family who attended the institution. You know, that's they that was that was a shift, and and the two things there they have something in common, and that's actual people, people yeah. they know, people yeah. they can talk to. Um, they, I mean, that to me says they place more value and this is a little bit of conjecture, but they place more value on actual interactions and relationships. Um, and that's, that's something I can understand. Uh, they wanted to actually talk to someone rather than just ask, Hey, Google on their, on their smart speaker. That, that is, is something I think is important to foster those relationships and be that resource. Uh, they were also the most likely to say though, that they didn't have a college counselor at their school to support them. Hmm. You know, Interesting. That's, yeah, and they 
so you have that challenge too. And and I didn't have a college counselor at my school. I mean, it it makes sense that then we we're sort of uh, representative. So you so who do you check in with? You know, if you're a first generation student, uh, or maybe you just haven't had people around that you can go to easily. Who do you go and ask? Or maybe colleges don't even visit your high school because you're so far out in the country. You know, there's there's actual situations like that. So who do you check in with? Um, the interesting thing to me, though, so pulling from a, a separate conversation um, I had with Akil Bello that we, we were talking about who was not taking college visits already. And so I dug into the data there. Um, found out that rural students were the least likely to not take any visits, huh. uh, which was surprising there. Um, but they were also, by a wide margin, the most likely to only visit one or two schools. Uh, so 58% only visited one or two schools versus 35% for suburban and urban students. You know, that's that's a big difference. So they were more focused in their college search, but they also weren't just not visiting anywhere prior to enrolling. Uh, so that's that was a little bit unexpected. Uh, I, I would have thought that being further away, they might not take as many, but I think it says they really value the college visit as part of their search. Yeah, I mean, and I think it just gives credence to what you were saying earlier about trusting in, you know, people, real humans sort of giving information and giving guidance as opposed to just, you know, trusting whatever you might read on a website or, uh, you know, a, a, a student blog even. Uh, it seems like these students um, just place more more value and um, more credibility in hearing from the horse's mouth, so to speak, about, no, this is actually what you need to do. And, you know, this is how this is what you can expect from an outcome standpoint, whether that again, whether that's from a parent or or um, an admissions counselor, et cetera. So uh, really appreciate those insights. Yeah. What do you I think? think the, the sorry, go ahead. Thing yeah. that I, I think the other thing that I've really tried to point out with all this is that there are schools that will not visit rural high schools because they're too far apart. It's hard to get from one to the other and do a bunch of visits in a day, but you might actually get more of a bang for your buck visiting yeah. rural students than going to all these very upscale suburban schools where they don't value the college, the, the admissions counselor one-on-one -on -one and, and as part of their search. So you may have to start rethinking that and do some tests. You know, I'm a big proponent of experimentation. So maybe have some counselors next year uh, if if we travel at all, uh, to go more so to rural high schools and do sort of counselor check-ins at other schools and see if that affects your uh, your application left. I love that idea. I you know, and I think one of the things that is will be particularly interesting is to see what happens, especially with this population of students during COVID nineteen when it's harder to slash, you know, in, in many cases, impossible to visit campus um, and or even from the admissions counselor side of things like how with folks who are already, you know, working longer days and, um, you know, working on weekends, just trying to keep their head above water. They don't necessarily have the time to have a one on one conversation with every prospective student via the phone. Right. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how what we're living through right now translates to this population of of students yeah i think it's going to be I, i'm really curious to see what the the uh, the results of this year's survey are going to be because i don't know you know are they more likely to take time off because they can't visit are they more anxious about it you know that's that's going to be really interesting to uh 
to see how this all turns out. I mean, I grew up on a on dirt road outside of a town of a thousand, and it, it was already intimidating going to a bigger town for college. You know, now you factor in, well, I couldn't even visit that place first, or, you know, there's now that risk of with more people comes more risk of infection. You know, do you leave that small town? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and I think that this just everything that you're saying right now just translates to very well to what we were what you were saying earlier about the need for schools to really think critically about their website user experience, because that's in, in many cases, like, all that's left, right, is like how and like, let's expand this to just digital experience in general, like, because your social media channels matter, uh, at least arguably more, more so than ever before. And so how do you as an admissions counselor, how do you as a VP of enrollment help guide your team and empower them with ideas and insights into how do you engage with students that are um, a little bit more high touch and students that rely heavily on and or are mostly influenced by the one to one communication? Like, how do you do that at scale? How do you spend more time and energy bettering the digital platforms that do exist with content that is going to resonate with these students, right? And, you know, how do you come up with like the second best thing to talking with the admissions counselor um, or to having that that in-person kind of campus visit? So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I feel for, for schools, especially those with small teams right now, um, any sort of one or two kind of pieces of advice um, with respect to, to that of, of how you think admissions counselors or or, uh, enrollment teams in general can sort of adapt in doing something that is at least remotely close to uh, to simulating the on-campus experience and or just that that one-to-one communication that this population craves? Yeah, I mean, everyone wants to go out and buy virtual tours and things like that. And that, I mean, that's better than nothing. But at the same time, students in the survey were saying that they preferred to seek out actual students and, and talk to them on social media and just ask them questions rather than the curated nature of, of the official channels. I think part of that can come down to they don't want that sugar-coated appearance. So maybe curating a list of students that very much will you know, host a live chat on, on Instagram Live or they will host AMAs on Reddit, you know, find ways to have actual voices of people on campus that students can connect with, you know, having the the video stories is great, but that's a one way. That's not a dialogue. Uh, So having ways like a a AMA or a, uh, I mean, we saw even keeping on rural students specifically, uh, rural students were the most likely to still be using Facebook. So having a Facebook live event where students and parents can ask questions engage with actual students and employees at the school, you know, rather than just recording these pre-recorded things, they can go and watch anytime. That's nice, but there's still going to be students who want that interaction. They want to be able to ask questions. So meet them where they are rather than require them to download zoom or anything. You know, they're already on Instagram. Why not allow them to actually ask questions there? Yep. Reduce friction, man. It's all about, it's all about reducing Mm -hmm. friction, especially for the, for this population. All right. Final question for you. If you had $10,000 to spend on a marketing campaign 
right now and you had to spend this cash in the next 30 days, how would you spend this cash? And again, imagine we're in the reality that we are in, right? It's May, what is it, May 18th here. Um, How would you spend this cash and then what metrics would you use to evaluate the success of this campaign? Yeah, I think I'd go two directions. If I'm doing a branding campaign, I'm doing a lot of impression-based uh, media. So putting out ads on on Instagram and Facebook through their ad network, uh, doing remarketing ads uh, to try and capture people who are already on my site and keep in front of them and keep them top of mind. Um, that's going to be some of, of why I spend that on. Uh, for branding in general, I would definitely also try to do some giveaways and some things to help. You know, this is a time where students might want some gear from college. You know, they want that sense of place again. So I'm going to spend a little bit of that on swag to give away. Um, you know, whether that's, hey, come come share your stories, come ask questions, you'll be entered into a drawing, some way to foster that engagement and foster that community while at the same time giving them that, that bit of community that they're looking for. Um, and then I'd be measuring that on, you know, right now am I seeing and lift and inquiries. And when I, I use the term lift, I, I hope I'm not alienating people who aren't familiar with that. So when you're talking about lift, you're looking at an increase from the expectation. So if you're looking at lift of traffic on your site, which would be one of the metrics I'd want to measure, you know, if I'm doing a geo-targeted ad of people in New England right now, because I know New England is very not set on their on their college decisions, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to do a geo-targeted campaign for awareness of my school and our offerings, maybe of our, our graduate program, something. I'm going to do this campaign just an awareness, impression-based campaign, and I'm going to measure the lift from those states uh, on our website traffic. Did we see a, an increase over what we've had in the past? Um, that'd be one way of, of measuring that. Same type of thing with inquiries, applications. You know, If your goal is awareness, you're still going to get some carryover into inquiries and applications if you're doing it well. So did we see more inquiries from that region? Did we see more applications? Um, for an application-based campaign, I'm going to be doing a lot of remarketing. You know, as part of that budget is going to be spent on finding new students who are out there looking. So who are our hot leads, the students who have inquired recently uh, or who are looking on other websites recently? Because I want people who are still actively searching for college. But then I also want to use the bulk of that budget on remarketing campaigns. So these students who are still on the fence it's much cheaper to convert someone you already know and has that awareness than start from scratch. So here we are mid-May. I'm not going to spend all my budget on going out trying to find new people. I'm going to spend that on doing a better job converting the people we have through digital remarketing campaigns, um, doing maybe some uh, directing them to to some new student videos that we have, talking about their experience with all this. You know, that's the one thing that I'm missing a lot is what do currently enrolled students, how are they talking about the way that their college has responded? Yeah. I've not seen many colleges taking advantage of that and say, Hey, you know, it's a tough time, but I really think the XYZ university did a fantastic job with transitioning over the online classes. Yeah. You know, my chemistry class, it was really hard to try and do chemistry labs online, but I think they did a really good job still of this, this, and this, you know, it doesn't have to be this student reading a script about how wonderful everything is. It has to be authentic. 
It has to be what they are experiencing. Because if a student had a horrible experience in online learning at their high school, they're expecting the same to be in college. But if a student says, yeah, you know, they did a good job of still having this sense of community. They still had these types of social events. They were still found a way to do these traditions. You know, that's the thing that will convert students right now. Will, thank you for your time. That was incredibly insightful. Um, and at least for me, I learned a lot um, and appreciate you. Uh, I enjoy talking about this stuff. I, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fun. And, you know, I think that like, while this is uh, a serious moment and and absolutely uh, a, a challenging one for for you know all of us in in a variety of ways and some of us more than others, I al- I also think that there's huge opportunity for innovation and reimagination of education of of the enrollment journey for students. And my hope is that our listeners uh, leave this conversation feeling hopeful and inspired um, with with several different ideas to to tap into over the coming weeks. So thank you for your time. If folks want to stay connected with you, Will, what's the best way for them to uh, connect with you and or and or learn more about what Niche does? Yeah, so the best way you can reach me, uh, you can find me over on Twitter if you're if you're there, uh, either lurking around the hashtag EMChat uh, community, or you can just go to me directly at Will underscore Patch. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, just Will Patch. Um, you can also email me if you prefer that, wpatch at niche.com. Uh, if you want to keep up with what Niche is doing on the um, on the, the user-facing side, it's just niche.com. Uh, we have some great resources there. Uh, if you just want to know sort of the value-add objects, the, thing, the things I've been working on, the research, uh, the data dives, the surveys, um, you can get to that most easily at niche.bz slash insights. Great. Well, thank you very, very much again, sir. Enjoy the rest of your of your afternoon, and um, you know we we hope to have you back at, at some point in the future. Hopefully, we can be talking uh, in the next few months about all the great success that came from f- people uh, implementing the ideas that you shared on the episode uh, today. I can hope so. I can hope so. Hey, thanks. I've really appreciated it. It's, it's interesting to be on this side of the microphone this time. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there. All right, friends, final, final, final plug for this awesome event that's happening next Thursday, May 28th at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
we are, well, we are not, I will be attending, but Mongoose is hosting an awesome virtual event called Chatbots and Conversational Marketing, higher ed's ticket to engagement right now. You can learn more about everything that Mongoose is doing to help institutions during this global pandemic by heading on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify, sign up for the event. Again, if you can't, uh, if you're not gonna be able to make the event, no worries. Just sign up so that they can send you a recording of it afterwards. If you have any additional questions about Mongoose and the team there, I'm happy to make a virtual uh, introduction to to my contacts there. Just email me at zach at enrollify.org and I'll set up that meeting. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening today to today's episode. Have a great rest of your week.